Well, hello, and thank you for being a part of Grace Church, and I hope you had a safe and happy Thanksgiving. My name is Bob Bryce, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm thankful that we can, you know, be together today, even if it's still, you know, kind of apart. I think I've mentioned to you before that my family and I have moved several times over the last 22 years. Different parts of the country, sometimes into existing homes, and sometimes into houses that we built. And believe me, when I say we built, it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek because, of course, we weren't actually the ones to build the house. Sometimes we didn't even really get to make very many even, I would call them simple decisions during the construction process. I remember often thinking, like, we are the ones paying for this, right? We, we can make some decisions? Well, the house we built out in Utah was just that way. Every change we wanted to make took just, I would say, like almost an act of Congress just to get through. But I'm also sure that they hated us by the time that it was all over. But we eventually just kind of figured out how to live with whatever. Even when things didn't go according to our plans, we, we kind of just had to adjust our expectations. But one of the biggest adjustments in that particular house came in the form of Tammy's job. Now, this was all the way back in 2001, and we had moved to Salt Lake City from Iowa for my new job. But Tammy's job, somewhat miraculously, honestly, moved with her. She was able to work from home almost 20 years ago, which is you know, kind of revolutionary at the time. Nobody, we didn't know anybody else that was able to work from home. So we thought, wow, this is really something. Of course, now it's just everyday life, right? So just think about how much has changed about the way we understand and use our homes over the last nine months. I mean, almost overnight, our homes became, you know, an office or a workplace or a conference room or a classroom, a gym, a church, a sports arena, an entertainment complex, and much, much more. Our entire concept of, of house and home seems to continue to expand day by day, doesn't it? Well, as we launch into this Christmas season, this is an unusual uh, year already, so it is bound to be an unusual Christmas season as well. I think we all know it will at least, if nothing else, be like no other, right? Our plans may have to change. Our traditions may need to be modified. Our understanding of what it means to be at home for Christmas will surely be different this year than from years past. But interestingly enough, just as our ideas about what home is keep expanding and getting bigger, God's understanding of, of house and home is also much bigger than we might initially think. Over 3,000 years ago, Israel's King David wanted to build a house for God. But God had other plans, bigger plans, much bigger in fact. So as we continue to wrestle with what home means to us in the world that we live in today, I think we can really benefit from exploring what it means to recognize our God as the ultimate house builder, who has his own plans to build his kingdom suddenly, surprisingly, and in ways that the world never sees coming. But before we get into this today, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together in these different ways. We know that by the power of your spirit, you continue to knit us together, your body. We ask now, Lord, that you reveal truth to us and change us, transform our hearts, that we might come to a, a greater understanding of, of not only who you are, 
but also who we are in you. We pray now, Lord, that you will speak to each one of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of 2 Samuel, which is part of the Hebrew Scriptures, or what we might call the Old Testament. We're going to be taking a look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 today, which is it's kind of all centered around this idea of house. In fact, the Hebrew word for house, which is bayit, I always remember that because, oh, look, it's a house. I want to buy it. It's used 15 times just in this section alone. So we're going to kind of see this, this theme about this house idea all throughout what we're talking about today. Now, this, this whole section of Scripture is, is kind of a hinge point in the overall journey of God and His people, meaning there's a big shift that takes place right here that can really help us understand more about how all of this is so amazingly and, and uh, interconnected and connected in bigger ways than maybe we've ever even thought about before. Now, the time period itself where this is taking place is somewhere around 1000 BC, and it's, it's often referred to as at least the start of the, of the golden age of Israel, because it really seemed like, you know, Israel had finally arrived. The long journey that generations of Israelites had been on from being freed from slavery in Egypt 450 years previous, it had all kind of you know, finally culminated in this moment where David, I'm sure you've heard of David, David is this conquering and consolidating king. In this moment, his, his enemies are subdued, and, and, and even the, the 12 loosely affiliated tribes of Israel had all kind of come together under this one king in this one kingdom, and for a moment, things were just great. It seemed like the time for Israel to just kind of collectively take a big, deep breath and rest for a moment. And so with that as the backdrop for our scripture today, I'm going to read from 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 1 to 17. And then after that, we're going to go back and kind of look at this a little bit at a time. So let's start in verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can come and have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest 
from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I, remo whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. So the first thing we notice is that David is having himself kind of a little victory party. I kind of imagine he's at the palace there and he invited the prophet Nathan over and they're kind of hanging out on the balcony, you know, kicking back, shooting the breeze, talking about the good old days, all their victories, things like that. But this palace, now you got to know this, this palace was no joke. It was the best of the best. This, this neighboring non-Jewish king, uh, this king of Tyre named Hiram, was friends with David. They got along great. And so this, this guy Hiram donated all the finest materials and even the laborers to build this exquisite palace for David out of cedar. Now, cedar at that time was both rare and expensive in terms of a construction material. So you, you just have to know that this palace was top tier. The realization of all this, all this luxury, was probably what hit David as he was standing on the balcony. And he's kind of, I imagine him looking out from the balcony over, over uh, off in the distance, and he, he sees the Ark of the Covenant, the very symbol of the presence of God himself sitting there in a tent. And I'm sure it kind of suddenly felt strange to David as he, he says in verse 1, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. In other words, David gets this idea, gets this idea that he wants to build a permanent house for God. And this is understandable because after all, if, if David is living in a palace, why shouldn't God have a nice place to call home to? And this whole idea is, is not without precedent either because in the ancient world, when kings were victorious, when they conquered their enemies, then they'd immediately, as fast as they could, they would build a temple for whatever God they believed had helped them to win. Why? Well, because the idea was that if this God had shown favor to them in their battles, then they wanted to make sure it stuck. They needed to secure that favor in, in a permanent way. It was essentially a containment strategy because they didn't want this God that had been nice to them just kind of wandering off helping anybody else, especially their enemies. So in other words, they, they didn't want to run the risk of this victory that they had had being you know, some kind of one-off. They wanted continued favor, ongoing protection, and, and, the, and the promise of, of greater and bigger victories. So that's what they were after. And naturally then it's, it's understandable David is kind of thinking this same way. He, he wants to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. He wants to build God a permanent place, a dwelling place, a temple. But unlike all these other false gods that all these other kings tried to contain, 
the real God, the only God, the God of Israel, cannot and will not be contained or confined in any kind of building, no matter how nice it is. Now, this is absolutely essential for us to understand. So hold this thought, because we're going to keep coming back to it over and over again. Our God is bigger than our limitations. Our God is bigger than our limitations. But even so, there's nothing really wrong with David's desire to build a house for God. You know, matter of fact, he's trying to show God his, appreci his appreciation. And in fact, God appreciates the gesture. The temple and the idea of building a house for God is not, not really the problem. And, and of course, the prophet Nathan thinks that this is a fine idea. Well, in verse 3, Nathan says, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Now, you notice this was kind of a quick reply, and, and this is not Nathan being, you know, cavalier or reckless or something. He's just pointing out what seems to be obvious here. It's, it's been clear for quite some time that the Lord is with David, almost his whole life, in fact. Then through all of his struggles and all of his challenges, you know, you had the David and Goliath situation. Then you had all these, these fights with the first king of Israel, Saul. And then finally Saul's out of the picture. And, and then David has all these battles for all this territory. And he finally wins these, these wars and captures Jerusalem and all these other territories. It, it was almost like David couldn't lose. Not because, though, this is important, not because he was powerful in and of himself, but because the power of God was with him in everything that he did. So, naturally, Nathan assumed God would be on board with, with pretty much anything that David wants to do, including this housing project. But not this time. After the party had ended, you know, everybody kind of goes home, the word of God came to Nathan. And God said, whoa, not so fast. I've got different plans. Tell David, and then we're going to look at verse 5. Tell David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever to any one of their rulers whom I commanded say, why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, God says, look, I don't need a house. I, I actually don't even want a house. What I want is to be with my people. Wherever my people go, that's where I'll be. Moving with them wherever they go and, and not being contained inside some building. Just like I've been with you from the beginning, David. All the, all the way back <laughs> to when you were nothing more than a little shepherd boy tending sheep in the field. I've been with you. But then God turns this, this whole thing upside down, Turn, turns it on its head. Remember, I said that this, this Hebrew word for house, buy it, keeps showing up over and over again. Well, listen to how God uses that word at the end of verse 11. It's very interesting. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. But this is not the kind of house that David was talking about. Not at all. 
David wanted to build God a, like a physical house, a structure where the presence of God would live. But God uses the same word, house, to say, well, no, it's, it's actually God who will be not just a house builder, but the ultimate house builder. But this house is not a physical structure that God is talking about. It's David's understanding of house is way, way too small. And God is about to expand that whole idea beyond David's wildest imagination. Because house, at least the way that God is talking about here, is a play on words that means God's going to establish not a physical structure, a, a house uh, to live in. God is going to establish David as a household name. Which, this sounds strange to us. And the, the closest example I can think of that, that we can all at least probably kind of relate to is like, like the Queen of England. You know, she comes from the house of Windsor. So this is the same kind of thing with David here. God is saying, the kind of house I'm establishing for you is a dynasty. It's a dynasty. It will go on and on. It doesn't, doesn't end just with you. Indeed, it's in fact just the beginning of what God begins building here, starting with David. And, and God continues to plan on expanding that more and more over time. Look at verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, this is one of these prophetic times in Scripture where the verses refer to both what's going on right then, the, the immediate uh, time thing that's happening, whatever circumstances, but it also refers to a distant future at the very same time. Because God is talking about raising up David's son, Solomon, who, who, who at this point is not even a thought in his father's eye at, the, at that moment. But it's also referring to something much, much bigger that's coming down the line. And so I want to take a look at the three dimensions to this promise that God makes to David by looking at, at each little piece of this just a little bit closer. Three dimensions of this promise. And so the first dimension is that the promise overcomes death. It overcomes death. God tells David, look, this promise is not just wrapped up in you. It's bigger than you. When you're dead and gone, the promise will continue to go on. And most immediately, that was a reference to David's eventual son named Solomon. Solomon would, in fact, be the one who was raised up from David's own flesh and blood, and he was the one that did build the temple, the house for God. But again... Remember that God refuses to be limited or contained inside of a building. And so even when Sol Solomon eventually did build the temple, he was, he being God, was never actually confined to it. 
And this was something that even Solomon understood. In fact, he says in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, uh, Solomon says, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. But why Solomon and not David? Why does Solomon get to build the temple? Since, since the, the temple was actually built, what stopped David from being the one to do the building? Well, we don't really know all the details, but we do know some of the details. And, and we know that it has something to do with David's past. And David himself says as much in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 3. But God said to me, this is David, God said to me, you are not to build a house for my name because you are a warrior and have shed blood. So it seems like, well, maybe what's going on here is that, well, David's hands were just kind of a little too dirty. And while he was a man of war, Solomon, his son, would be a man of peace. However, and we really don't, we can't go into all of this whole sordid tale uh, today, but Solomon's very existence came from the union between King David and the wife that he stole from someone else. This is not exactly kind of, you know, the above board behavior we're looking for here, but that whole sinful streak, the mistakes that David made are significant here because that's, that's the second dimension of the promise I want to take a look at, which is that the promise survives sin. There is sin, yes, but the promise survives sin. In other words, no matter how badly these future kings would screw things up, and they did, God would not revoke the promise. The promise God made is an everlasting one. He says it goes on forever. It's one of these kinds of promises we see throughout the Hebrew Scriptures where God makes an agreement either with, with a person or with the people of Israel. Sometimes we call that a covenant, an agreement, you know, things like that. God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with, with Moses. But in each of those circumstances and in, in all of these covenants, there's, there's at least a little piece of this that God always seems to keep for himself. A part of it that depends completely and totally on God's grace alone to make it or break it. And we see that very same thing here with David. In verse 15, God says, But my love will never be taken away from him. And the key word in that sentence, the word that's translated here as love, in Hebrew that word is, is pronounced hesed which refers, our language in English is just too limited. This, this Hebrew word, hesed, refers to this special kind of love that is rooted in God's grace. It's rooted in God's grace. It's rooted in God's character. It's not just like, oh, I love chocolate cake, which I, which I do. It's, it's much more than that. It's rooted in God's grace. So whenever we find God making these kinds of big promises and these kinds of covenants, we see this word hesed show up. And therefore, when we see that, we should understand that, that God is pledging the kind of love and commitment here to at least parts of these agreements that he alone will be the one 
to see it through. He alone is liable to keep up this, even when people don't keep up their end of the bargain, which is, of course, good news, right? Because people fall short of God's expectations all the time, don't they? We are certainly no exception. I am certainly no exception. But neither were the kings of Israel. David wasn't perfect either. We just talked a little bit about that. Even though he was a man after God's own heart, he made plenty of mistakes. And his son Solomon, remember Solomon, peace, all this stuff, uh, wisdom, a lot of of the wisdom literature in the Hebrew Bible is written by Solomon, very wise, but wow, did the train really go off the tracks with this guy. By the end of Solomon's reign, he had something like 700 wives and, and was worshiping foreign gods right alongside those wives, bowing to idols, going to high places, doing all of the things that is just the absolute worst thing you could possibly do. The one thing that God over and over again says, you will not do this. Solomon did it all. Talk about a big, giant mess. But even, even in the face of that kind of sin, even with that big mess, God did not revoke the promise. While God certainly did, however, punish Israel for their sins, and he punished them greatly, as we'll continue to see in these upcoming weeks, the promise itself still survives. The promise survives sin, even the worst kind of sin. Because, again, it's God himself who remains ultimately and completely and forever faithful. And God always keeps his promises. So finally, this third dimension of the promise is that it's also not tied by time. It's not tied by time in any way. God does not give an expiration date for this promise. Matter of fact, he says this is, this is an everlasting promise in that a descendant of David a member of the house of David, is the one who will remain on the throne to rule and reign, not just for a little bit of time, not for a fixed amount of time, but forever. The promise is not bound by time. In fact, it it transcends time. So you see, while this promise is certainly for and about David's immediate offspring, Solomon, at the same time, it it goes well beyond that. It goes well beyond David and Solomon and Rehoboam and all of the, all of the Davidic kings that come be, beyond those two. This Davidic line is what can be traced all the way to the promised one, the Messiah. The one that, that Matthew refers to in chapter one of his gospel where, where he lays out this entire genealogy, revealing and showing that, that this person is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, who will be the final, ultimate fulfillment to this promise that was made to David. That's who Jesus is. The same Jesus who announces basically as much at the end of Matthew when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus, God in the flesh, is the everlasting king that's promised. The king of kings. The one who this 
Christmas season, unusual or not, the one this Christmas season is all about. So as we enter into this Christmas season, in this, this most unusual time, in these most unusual circumstances, I want us to be thinking about a few key things over the next several weeks that we have together. As you continue to reflect on this idea of, of house and home, and, and it still gets challenged and expanded, and, and it's changing in our world almost day by day, how does knowing more about God's perspective start to shape your own perspective. In other words, are you able to see how easy it can be for us too to associate God's presence with a particular building? Does that sound at all familiar? Because we do this way often, uh, way more often than we would like to admit. We, we sometimes think, well, you know, God is found only in the church building. But I hope we've shown that that's totally wrong. God has no intention of being confined or bound to a particular building. Remember, God is bigger than our limitations. And when it comes to thinking about sin in our lives, are you right now burdened by something? Are you, are you afraid that somehow you might be out of God's reach? You might be completely uh, so far away based on what you've done or, or things you haven't done that God can't even get to you anymore? Because remember, God's, God's promises survive even the worst of your sins and mine. In fact, Jesus himself destroys the sins of the entire world, past, present, and future. And so maybe today is the day. Maybe today is the day that you ask Jesus to take your burdens and to instead give you new life that we can only find in him. But no matter what, no matter how big your sin is or how big you think it is, God is bigger. Lastly, remember we said that God is not bound by time either. And his work in and through us doesn't somehow magically end just because the worship service ends. God doesn't show up just during these times that we have our worship services. He doesn't show up at the building or something like that. We've got to change all of that thinking. We've got to change our understanding and we've got to understand that no matter what our circumstances are, no matter that our, our circumstances for meeting together have changed and, and that they may continue to change, God still is absolutely not limited or restricted by any of it. And therefore, we can choose to meet one another and encourage one another in creative ways that are not bound or related to a particular or a fixed time or a particular place, location, physical structure. I mean, you could join a small group that meets online. We have lots of them. You, you can pick up the phone and you can call someone that maybe you used to see every week at church and now you haven't seen for a long time. You can interact with us. You can send us a message. We can pray for you. We'd be happy to do so. But whatever it is, no matter what our limitations are, no matter what our restrictions are, remember, God is bigger. And it all boils down to this. You know, we, we have this benefit of knowing what David and his descendants didn't know at the time. We know that this promised king 
this king of kings, Jesus, the one who, who came and fulfilled all of God's great promises in himself, he's already come. During this Christmas season, it seems like we're waiting for Jesus to come. And at the same time, we know, well, this has already happened. That's really good news. But as we look forward during this Christmas season, in this unusual year that's full of stresses and struggles, don't forget that part. Don't forget that Jesus is already ruling on David's everlasting throne. And he's promised that the story, no matter how messy it seems to be right now, is not over yet. God is bigger. Remember that. Amen.